0: In Chiridian, Chapter Three. In the case of everything that attracts you, or has its uses, or that you are fond of, keep in mind to tell yourself what it is like, starting with the most trivial things. If you are fond of a jug, say, "I am fond of a jug." Then, if it is broken, you will not be troubled. When you kiss your little child or your wife, say that you are kissing a human being. Then, if one of them dies you will not be troubled. This famous passage from Enchiridion 3 highlights the fact that this handbook is intended for practitioners who are already familiar with Stoic theory and practice. I say that because this passage, read in isolation, without an adequate understanding of Stoic teaching, can easily leave one with the wrong impression. In fact, absent the larger context of Stoic theory and practice, This passage can appear inhumane or even pathological and can turn people away from Stoic practice. As Lawrence Becker, the late professor of philosophy at the College of William and Mary, points out The image of the austere, dispassionate, detached, tranquil, and virtually affectless sage, an image destined to be self refuting, has become a staple of anti Stoic philosophy, literature, and popular culture it has been constructed from incautious use of the ancient text and is remarkably resistant to correction. However, when we place a passage like Enchiridion 3 within the full context, the caricatures conjured by these incautious interpretations are easily dismissed. By focusing on several words and phrases used in this passage, we can see this is simply another more advanced application of the distinction between what is up to us and not up to us. So let's dissect this passage, place it in context, and see if a different picture of Stoic practice emerges. First, we need to consider three important phrases in Enchiridion 3. Epictetus offers three different categories of things. In summation, these categories include everything that attracts you or has its uses or that you are fond of in life. Let's consider each of these one at a time. First, a thing that attracts you, an amusement, a fascination, an entertainment. Next, a thing that has its uses, something that can be useful, can be used or put into service. The Greek word used here is used more than 100 times in the Discourses and in Enchiridion. Finally, a thing you are fond of. This implies love or affection. A form of this Greek word is used 11 times in the Discourses and Enchiridion. It is used six times in Epictetus' lesson on family affection, which is Discourses 111, and we'll talk about that later. It is important to consider the broad range of external things these categories include because it helps us understand the meaning of this passage and avoid a mischaracterization of Stoicism this passage frequently evokes. First, it includes external things that we find amusing, fascinating, or entertaining. This may be a television, a computer, or other electronic device that provides basically mindless entertainment. It may also be a beautiful painting or other piece of artwork we admire. Or it could be a collection of coins, stamps, dolls, trinkets, etc. This list is nearly endless. Next, there are those things that we may find useful or be able to put into service. Again, many things come to mind. Favorite coffee cup. A smartphone, a computer, a tablet, a car, a house, a comfortable chair, etc. And again, the list of things that fall into this category is extremely long. Finally, we have those things for which we feel love or affection. Wait a second, you might think. Did Epictetus say love and affection? Well, to be precise, Epictetus uses a Greek word that can be translated and typically is translated as fondness, as it is here in this passage. Or it can be translated as love and affection. Interestingly, fondness in this passage is directed exclusively toward people. It's not applied to those things that we've already discussed. Specifically, this passage directs fondness toward our children or spouse. Immediately, this evokes an image of feeling and connection with loved ones that many mistakenly believe is absent in Stoicism. However, as we will see later, that is a mischaracterization. This brings up another extremely important aspect of this passage that is essential for the deconstruction of this mischaracterization and the development of a proper understanding of this frequently misunderstood passage. As already noted, this passage deals with a broad range of things or externals in our lives. What is easily overlooked in this passage is the hierarchy from the most trivial of things like a jug up to those things which we have a genuine love or affection for spouses, children. It is a gross misunderstanding of Stoic theory to suggest our affinity for a spouse or a child should be equivalent to our affinity for a jug. The Stoics certainly do place all these things in the same category of preferred indifference and teach us not to be troubled by the loss of any of them. Nevertheless, as this passage makes clear, there is a natural distinction between our affinity for things that amuse us, entertain us, and are useful to us, and those humans that are closest to us in our circle of affinity. In Enchiridion 3, Brad Inwood argues that Epictetus is not, of course, advocating utter indifference to one's loved ones, any more than Chrysippus was advocating indifference to one's health in the fragment preserved in Discourses 2.6, 9-10. through Additionally, Inwood argues, quote, it must be remembered that this readiness for setbacks does not rule out determined efforts and actions to achieve one's proper goals, staying healthy, keeping one's children alive, executing the various plans and actions which make up a life of appropriate actions. But in the uncertainty of a human life, all these actions and plans, which are or depend on forms of impulse, should be carried out with the addition of reservation. In this way, one may attain the smooth flow of life, which is characterized by consistency with oneself and with the will of Zeus. In fact, in Discourses 1.11, which addresses the topic of family affection, Epictetus makes it quite clear that family affection, accompanied by reason, is in accordance with nature. This lesson takes the form of a dialogue between Epictetus and a government official who claims that his affection for his little daughter forced him to leave her presence when she was sick. He claimed that he could not bear seeing his daughter suffer. But by the end of this dialogue, Epictetus leads this official to understand that he left his daughter's presence during her time of need because of his own wrong judgment about what is appropriate rather than his affection for her. I encourage everyone to take the time to read the entire discourse discourse One Eleven, it presents a case of familial love and affection that is frequently overshadowed by misleading caricatures of stoics that are derived from passages like this one in Enchiridion 3 discourse One Eleven places challenging passages like Enchiridion 3 and discourses 3.24.88 into context in the latter of those passages i just mentioned epictetus instructs Quote, from now on, whenever you take delight in anything, call to mind the opposite impression. What harm is there in your saying beneath your breath as you're kissing your child, tomorrow you'll die. Or similarly to a friend, tomorrow you'll go abroad. Or I will, or we'll never see one another again. Discourses 2.24.88 Again, it is wholly inaccurate to suggest this passage teaches Stoics to be indifferent toward their loved ones. Instead, Epictetus is encouraging us to accept the true nature of human existence. It is fragile and temporal. Likewise, this passage serves as a reminder to practice premeditatio malorum, because things break, people die, and events frequently do not turn out the way we intend. So, why should we practice envisioning the loss of possessions, the onset of dispreferred circumstances, and the death of loved ones? Because that practice helps to keep us on the path toward true freedom. To be free, as Epictetus teaches, we must disconnect our well being from anything that is not up to us. To act otherwise, is an attempt to claim authority over that which is not up to us, and that path leads us into slavery to externals, which produces a troubled mind. The whole point of Enchiridion 3 is to avoid a troubled mind by understanding and accepting the true nature of all external things and our lack of control over them. Jugs break and loved ones die. That is the normal operation of nature. To expect something different or base our well-being on a hope that it should be different or will be different sets us up for failure and a troubled mind. The Greek word used here, which is translated troubled, is used eight times within five passages of the Enchiridion. Two of those instances are here in this chapter three. The use of that word in the Enchiridion highlights the distinction between the psychological state of true freedom and that of a troubled mind. In one we see that if we seek those things which are not up to us, we will have a troubled mind. Here in Enchiridion 3, we see that if we do not consider the true nature of things, we will be troubled. In Enchiridion 5, we will see that our opinion about things and events is what troubles us. In Enchiridion 12, we'll see that when we base our well-being on the outcome of our actions, we will be troubled. And finally, in Enchiridion 28, We will see that if we allow the insults of others to affect our mind, we will be troubled. Each of these passages emphasizes that famous dichotomy between what is and is not up to us. The Stoic Path requires us to understand that all externals, whether we seek them for entertainment, their usefulness, or love and affection, are outside of our control. They are not up to us. TVs, computers, smartphones, collectibles, beautiful and awe inspiring artifacts, our favorite coffee cup, and family heirlooms can be broken, burned, lost, or stolen. Likewise, those people for whom we feel love and affection can become sick and die. Therefore, we set ourselves up for failure and psychological distress when we desire any of these things as goods and seek them with the expectation that they will bring us happiness. Stoicism does not teach us to deny ourselves any of these preferred indifference. Instead, Stoic practice trains us to seek our good in one thing alone, our moral excellence or virtue, because it is the only thing that we have complete control over and in which we can find true freedom and well-being. Most people intuitively understand and agree with the idea that things cannot make us happy. However, when Epictetus teaches us to apply the same logic to those humans that we love and feel affection toward, many people balk. That is likely because it can appear harsh, cold-hearted, callous, or even pathological at first glance. However, when we look beyond the natural emotions that even a Stoic will have in response to the loss of a loved one, we can begin to understand why the same logic must be applied to all externals. Humans are mortal. They die. Moreover, we cannot control our friends, family, spouses, and children. They are not up to us. They may leave or abandon us for their own reasons. And if our well-being is contingent on their presence in our lives, We have set ourselves up for failure and psychological distress, a troubled mind. We can love them and feel affection for them, however, we must not rely on them for our psychological well being. I will close this episode with a passage from an exceptional book titled Stoicism and Emotion by Margaret Graver, Professor of Classics at Dartmouth College. She writes, quote, It is with this point in mind that we should read Epictetus' advice to love other people in full awareness of their mortality. Just as one can be fond of a vase or goblet and yet not be devastated if such a fragile thing should happen to break, so, says Epictetus, one should train oneself to love a child, a sibling, or a friend without unrealistic expectations, remembering that death is a regular fact of human life. Thank you for listening to the Stoicism on Fire podcast. If you're interested in this ancient practice of Stoicism, you will find plenty of resources at www.traditionalstoicism.com. If you're interested in a social media environment where this form of Stoicism is discussed, please join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on the platform where you listen to this podcast. That tells others this podcast is worth listening to and thereby introduces more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you have feedback or a great podcast idea for me, send me an email at chris, that's C-H-R-I-S, at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue exploring traditional Stoicism, where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire of the ancient Stoics. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.